Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm John Gregory Smith, and my new cookery book is called Saffron in the Souks, and it's packed full of vibrant recipes from Lebanon. The first line in this cookbook says, When I was writing my first cookbook in 2010, I went to work as a chef in Beirut. Let's go back for a minute and tell me how you got to that point in 2010 in Beirut. Um, So the landscape was very different then. So social media was a completely different beast back in 2010. I think, I don't even think Instagram was really a thing back then. So it was more like kind of Facebook and Twitter. And I'd heard about, um, I'd read like an article on a restaurant. So very old school, like in a newspaper that um, was like a community kitchen. So the guys um, set up this place uh, called Towlet in Beirut, where they had you know really good front of house, really good chefs, and they would invite um, people from local regions of the Lebanon to come and, and cook their local cuisine. The landscape there was um, a bit say let's say challenging outside of the city and that it was still a bit dangerous so a lot of the people with the money who were living in Beirut weren't traveling anywhere so what he wanted to do was sort of encourage people to come and cook they could take home a bit of cash and sort of you know just just do good things via food and I thought it sounded incredible and I also thought it sounded like a very smart way to go to one place and learn about all the regional cuisine of the country and and you know Lebanon's not a huge country anyway but when it wasn't sort of a great place to be traveling around, you could just go to the city and stay there. And I emailed them and they got back to me and said, yeah, you know, come out. That would be great. We'd love to have you. And I basically was there for a couple of weeks and I would go in every morning and do the morning shifts and help the guys prep for lunch service. And the, the, the way they sort of eat in this restaurant is just beautiful. So you go in and you pay a set price um, I think it's about $30 or whatever. And you have this ginormous banquet laid out for you of hot and cold mezes and then amazing stews and meats and, and amazing vegetarian food sort of from the different regions. So the, the ladies who would come in from the regions would spearhead what they wanted to cook and then the chefs would help them prepare it. So it was really good quality food, really interesting menus, and it was changing all the time. And the desserts, oh my God, God, they were so delicious. So they'd have this huge counter laid out, you know, with opulent dessert. And it was just incredible. So I learned so much um, and really, really enjoyed the city as well. Um, You know, it was a very vibrant place to be. There was a lot happening. It felt like it was really exciting. But I was very much advised to just stay in the city um, for my own safety. I I don't speak Arabic and... um, that was sort of, the, you know, what, when the locals tell you to do something, you tend to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I had this incredible time, kept in touch with everybody in the restaurant. And they were sort of saying, well, you know, the country's changing. It's really opening up. It's a lot safer now. Why don't you, know, you should think about coming back? And I did. I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And I, I went back and hired a car and drove around for a few months on my own and tapped into these lovely ladies who'd helped me originally. And it was so nice sort of going to revisit them and, and going to stay in their homes and, and, you know, spend time with them properly and cook with them on their own terms. And it was just phenomenal. Now, years later, when you went back, did you go thinking about writing a cookbook or did you just go back just to revisit it? Absolutely writing a cookbook. I, I got the kind of the green light 
um, that I could, but basically I sort of said to the guys I, I'd stayed in touch with um, in the restaurant, if I come back, the way I write books is I, I need to drive around, I need to be on my own, I need to soak things up, I need to sort of feel that I can go anywhere, do everything, meet everyone. Can that, is that doable? And they were like, absolutely. So I spoke to my publisher, felt that if I could do it, go for it. So they were quite supportive. Did you have a translator? Yes. Um, <laughs> my Arabic is dreadful. It's a really hard <laughs> language. Yes. And I'm, I'm very bad at languages anyway. I can speak like three words of French. And, um, <laughs> you know, Arabic is a very different beast. So I can sort of say like, hello and uh, thank you. And most of the times when I say that, people don't really understand what I'm saying. So I would very much have a translator. But actually... What I found when I was was there that most of the guys would speak a little bit of English and sort of it, it, I could get round it quite easy. But you, it was nice when I did have a translator because I could get the beautiful stories and the nuances of the food quite a lot better. Tell me about the title Saffron and the Souks. It just rolls off the tongue. So it's um, what I like to do is when I go to these countries, I get incredibly overexcited. I'm quite an excitable person and I sort of charge around, I, you know, full of energy. I see everything, do everything. And I tend to just love it all. And what I want to do is communicate that to, to everybody, really. And, and it has to be through the recipes, through the writing and the title. And what I was trying to come up with was something really evocative and beautiful and sort of that would inspire, I guess, how the country had inspired me, really. And so Saffron in the Souks just felt like it had that lovely hint of something exotic. You know, it just, it, it felt perfect for it. It's nice. You could even name a restaurant Saffron in the Souks. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I love it. It's really pretty. Tra trademark, by the way, so you can't. <laughs> oh, darn. I was going to do my new Twitter handle, Saffron in the Souks. Funny. What is typical Lebanese street food? So the, like the really good stuff will be kebabs. Um, amazing kebabs. They eat them you know, um, meat over fire, you wouldn't cook it at home because you don't, you know, you don't have a huge fire pit. So that is served everywhere. And, you know, any town you go to will have a really good kebab shop and they make everything from chicken sheesh, which is like the very basic marinated cubes of chicken to like more kind of elaborate lamb kebabs and, and sort of ground meat. And then the other thing is, um, but like, again, because they don't have ovens, you use communal bakers. So even in the tiny villages, they'll have a local baker. And the baker will obviously cook the bread. But they also do these really wicked things called um, manouche, which is like a, a, a flatbread that's cooked fresh with za'atar. And za'atar is a spice blend of different dried herbs, sumac, which is like a, a red berry that grows in sort of dry areas and it's ground and it's got a very tart flavor and then finally sesame seeds it's quite a sort of sucker punch of flavor and they drizzle that uh, oil and put this spice mix over the raw dough and bake it and that you sort of eat that as breakfast on the go and it's just divine tell me about picking fresh za'atar in nabathi Nabatia. So that was yeah, that was really interesting because actually that was um, right in the south of Lebanon by the Israeli border, and I was advised not to go there. I think people just felt it could be a bit risky, basically. And anyway, I was with uh, the guys who I'd been working with the whole time who'd ran this kitchen, and I was saying I really want to go down there, but I've been kind of told not to. And they went, "Listen, that we know this brilliant farmer there. He's really lovely. Let's call him." 
and see what he says. So we called this guy, he's called Abu. And Abu was so lovely. And he went, look, it's completely fine at the moment. It's really safe. It feels like it's been safe for quite a while. Just why don't you come down to the farm? So I went with um, a friend of mine who, she actually drove me. And now I did drive everywhere in Lebanon. And it was only out of laziness she decided to drive. And uh, it also meant that the journey, which probably would have taken me maybe four hours because I drive so slowly <laughs> took about an hour because they drive she drove so fast so we went there and it was exquisite you know it was a really vibrant green part of Lebanon beautiful like it was springtime so it was like wildflowers everywhere and this herb called zatar grows there so if you buy this this blend called zatar say in America it will probably have thyme or oregano in it as the herb. In Lebanon, they actually have a herb called zatar, and it, it's, it's native to, to their country, and it's got this incredible perfume. And Abu was this wonderful man, really just so much energy and life. He was gorgeous. Grew this, this herb commercially. When he first started growing it, everyone was like, you're insane because this just grows wild everywhere. We can just pick it. And he basically knew that he had found the best zatar plant. So he had the last laugh because his now his zatar is very coveted all over Lebanon and beyond. I think wow. he even stocks some restaurants in London now with it. And he was just so lovely. And we we sort of strolled around his farm and he took me down to this incredible like river that was in this gorge. And it was just so beautiful because I was kind of thinking like I was so lost in the sort of like whimsical beauty of this place. And I was like, my God, we're actually in a really dangerous part of the world. You know, who would have thought? This is, this is, this, this kicks off here. It's just too beautiful. And then he developed, he was such a canny old man. So he developed this sort of technology, this machine that could spin the herbs. So with the, he would dry it and spin it and it would remove all the little bits of grit and separate the, like the lovely top bit of the herb from the grit. And I'm like, you know, the journalist in me was like, I want more information. Like, tell me about this. How does it work? What does it do? And he just, it was, he was really funny because I was all through a translator and I could just see his face. He was just went very serious while she was talking. And then he just roared laughing. And I even <laughs> understood what he was saying. He was like, there's absolutely no way that I'm telling you how this works. This is my trade secret, you know, back on your horse. And it was just so wonderful. It was such a lovely experience. I'm really glad that I went down there and you know, I felt completely safe. And then it, and it's great for me to be able to report back on it. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone should run down there immediately. But if you know, if you choose to, and it's the right, right for you, it's, it, it's pretty fabulous. I love the photo of him on page 139. Yeah, amazing. There, there's just so many stories in that face of his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's amazing. So describe um, the Lebanese seven spice. Lebanese food, they do use a lot of spices, but actually it tends to be sort of in general, it's quite herb heavy and fresh. Uh, and it's more of the sort of older Arabic dishes that they use spices in. And one of the, the blends is called seven spice. And it's typically more than seven spices. That's what I came to realize when I was there. <laughs> I was like, that's not seven, that's about 12. And people would just sort of look at me very blankly. Um, <laughs> but it's, it tends to be quite sort of heavy, woody spices. So cloves, cinnamon, nutmeg, th those sort of things. And then they they add in this incredible spice called maleb. And maleb is actually cherry stones. So the pips or the seeds from a cherry and they're ground, which sounds disgusting. Like you'd just be thinking, why would you want to grind a gross old stone after you've eaten it? But it has the most incredible like sweet perfume. So actually in, in Syrian cuisine, they use it a lot in 
desserts. So lots of sort of pastries and baklavas they'll add it to. But it goes into some of the seven spice mixes and you can sort of smell the ones that have it. But it can be quite hard to find. And I think America is very similar to the UK in if you order it, you get it. But that can be a bit of a faff. But I think you can get a, a mix called baharat. Um, so I know, for example, like in Whole Foods, you can buy baharat. And that's that's a sort of similar style blend. So I've tried to kind of put that in. I think everywhere I've said seven spice, I've put that in just so you can, you know, you can stay on top of the cooking. How do you spell that if we want to look for it at Whole Foods? Ooh, let's try. I'm quite dyslexic, but I'll give okay. it a go. I think it's <laughs> B-A-H, B-A-H-A-R-A-T. That's okay. It. It's so it's it's spelled like it sounds. Yes, I think so. Maybe check on Google just in case I'm yeah. completely we'll wrong. Just, there. We'll just look in the bees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I found it interesting that Beirut used to be called the Paris of the East. Talk yes. a little bit about that. So um, Beirut was originally a very liberal city, uh, a coastal city, beautiful beaches, beautiful people, beautiful drinks, beautiful food. Um, and it was a French doctorate for quite a long time, Lebanon. So it had a massive, um, you know, like French uh, hangover almost. And, and you know, so the architecture there was like very sort of Parisian, like beautiful wide streets, very unlike typical Arabic. It would have wide balconies, beautiful French windows. So things were very like open on the facade. Whereas if you go to a very sort of Arabic city, everything's very closed. Um, because they like to do things behind closed doors. So it, it, it sort of had this beautiful architecture, really good art scene, and, and it was known as being quite decadent city. And they used to do like, um, that. there's a city outside of Beirut called Baalbek, which is an extraordinary city near Syria. And um, Baalbek used to have, it's famous for Roman ruins, actually. It's got the most incredible Roman ruins. Like the temples look like the Acropolis. It's the temple to Dionysus, and which is the god of booze. And um, they used to do these incredible festivals there in the 40s where all the kind of Hollywood greats would go. And it was a real kind of like roaring place to be. And then unfortunately, just because of politics and, uh, you know, religion and strife, it, it, it took a massive turn for the worst. But the people who live there remember that and they hold on to that and they treasure that and what's really lovely now is that people are like we want that back and we're going to get it back and you really feel that when you're there now like Beirut has so much energy when you're there really amazing like all on the all along the coast really like rocking beach bars where you just hang out all day and the, the really kind of like creative artsy side of the city as well. So like lots of poets and musicians and artists and they're really sort of injecting life back into it. So, you know, fingers crossed that they can they can do it because it's it's certainly a cool place to be. So speaking of Dionysus, when you think about an Arabic country, you would assume no one drinks or parties. <laughs> Exactly. And boy, do they drink and party there. Um, <laughs> so Lebanon is, is a very small country and um, it's, it's, it's near, obviously, Jerusalem. So it has, during the Crusades, it was always uh, quite a hot spot. That coast was very kind of dominant. And, and that whole area has always been um, a bit of a, what's a nice way to put it, a bit of a, you know, a slight tussle between the uh, different religions, let's say. <laughs> a tussle. Um, so when, yeah, <laughs> really kind of top line way of saying it. 
but when when you're there you know there's obviously a massive christian community still there so in this sort of small country you've got a big christian community you've got there's a big arabic community um they've got druze they've got jews they've got loads of different sort of communities there and um you know a lot of those communities are very happy uh, you know arabs do party but they just party in a very different way but you know, there's a lot of them there who certainly like to party with a good drink in hand. And the interesting thing about Lebanon is uh, they have a, a to the east a valley called Becca Valley, and Becca Valley is the wine region. So it's filled with vineyards, and they they make some exquisite wines there. So describe the sour tang that the Lebanese palate is so partial to. Yeah, right. So it's extraordinary. They they love sour, and um, when you're uh, cooking with Lebanese people, there's certain ingredients that they just, you know, like their eyes light up and they love the taste of sour. So pomegranate molasses, which is essentially just pomegranates, which obviously, you know, we know are full of those pips with that lovely kind of like bejeweled bit of fruit around each one. And they just squeeze the juice out and simmer it down. And the natural sweetness turns it into this very sort of sticky molasses. And they will shove that in salads, stews, They'll make like vinaigrettes and sauces out of it. So it gives this very sort of like sweet, sour tang. And then the lemons there are incredible. They're, they are tart, but they're not, they're, not like, they're not like kind of really horrid sort of bitter lemons that make you wince. They're sort of more like amalfi lemons. They're huge, slightly sweet flavored. They're gorgeous. And they will really go for it with that. And then the other, the other ingredient I think I mentioned earlier is the... Um, the sumac which is this sort of ground red berry and quite often they'll use all three so they might for example when they make fatouche which is one of the classic lebanese salads which is essentially chopped ingredients with bits of crispy fried bread which is deeply pleasing they'll make the dressing with pomegranate molasses lemon juice and sumac and then they put in their gorgeous olive oil so it's very very sour and it's interesting when you're cooking with someone whose palate's say a bit more developed in that direction than you, because I'd be like, oh, you know, just a little hint. And they're like, what are you doing? Just keep going, keep going. <laughs> and actually it does work, you know, like when you're using really lovely fresh ingredients, they can quite often take a sour. So it's lovely. When I think about Lebanon, I don't think about exciting produce. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a funny old place because, again, for such a small country, it's got the most incredible different terrain. So you've obviously got the, the Mediterranean Sea to one side, so you get all the coastal food. Then you've got the, the mountains um, in the north and the south. So really you've got a band of mountains in the middle and then a valley on the, on the other side. And it's very fertile. So it's an incredibly fertile country. So they grow everything from fruit and vegetables to amazing herbs, really, really amazing herbs, uh, to like rice, grains. So everything grows there. And because it gets, you know, like they get really good seasons. So you get really long, long, hot summers. You get good autumn, good spring where it's a lot cooler and then cold winter so things can regenerate. You do get this sort of incredible incredible turnaround of produce there and what's lovely is they don't have a culture like say mine or yours where we're so used to going into a supermarket and you get whatever you want whenever you want there they i mean they do have supermarkets in the cities but everything's just seasonal you just get what you get and it is really lovely you know like there'll be certain things at certain times of the year like for example strawberries where they just go mad for it or in the spring when the green beans come 
fava beans. They just love it. And you see like little stalls popping up everywhere selling this just one ingredient. You know, like the farmers will just come and just like, right, we've got a glut of them. And everybody gets really excited about it. It's so sweet because they may only be around for a couple of months. And I just, I, because I don't have that, you know, like I'm just grown up in London where we you know, go to the supermarket, get what you want. And I just, I love sort of being around that sort of excitement over something so simple. I think it's really gorgeous. One recipe that was surprising in this cookbook is the garlicky Duma dumplings. Is it Duma? <gasps> oh, yes. They're Tell so me about good. that. <laughs> <laughs> so Duma is this beautiful, like little Christian village. So it's, it looks like you're in Tuscany. It's in the, it's in the hills. Um, before you get to the mountains and it's so beautiful. I mean, it really is extraordinary. I took my parents there and they couldn't believe it because you've got these little villages with huge churches in everything's like dome tiled roofs. So they, it really looks like Italy. It's really weird. And all like olive trees growing around and in the villages there, they make these dumplings. So they almost like make a pasta dough and they fill them with meat. And then so, and they actually look even like little tortellini. And then they serve them in a yogurt sauce. And I, ha- I got really, <laughs> when I first got given this bowl of like joy, I was so overexcited. And because I'm such a geek, my first thing that I wanted to do was take a photo. <laughs> and the light was really bad. So I was in this like beautiful old house with this like amazing kitchen and these lovely women sort of cooking and chatting. And, and, and I got given this bowl of food and sort of went, <gasps> yelped and made a run for what had been the door to get <laughs> to go outside. And I hadn't realised that someone had actually closed the glass door. <gasps> so I just ran into, into a glass no. door. And the, like, luckily, nothing bad happened, but the whole bowl of food just flew all over me. So I like, sort of turned around, covered, literally sort of like dumplings dripping down my face. And they were all just in utter hysterics. Like, oh they thought my. I was sort of weird enough anyway. And then that was the sort of, you know, <laughs> the cherry on you top. Over the top. Oh, it was so funny. But they are absolutely dreamy. Uh, and they're quite easy to make because the dough is very... Um, there's actually no egg in it so unlike pasta there's no egg in that dough so it's super easy to work with and they are delicious last weekend i made your recipe for beiruti meatballs on page 111 i saw now this is a traditional recipe named after an ottoman man named daut basha yeah um how have you adapted this recipe and how did this guy get a dish named after him so Funnily enough, the woman who who sort of told me this story, she, it was really funny. So she was this incredible woman. She was so glamorous and cool. And I met her in the restaurant in Beirut. So actually, I, I didn't meet her 10 years ago. I met her this time around because I kept going to the restaurant for lunch. So whenever I was in the city, I'd always pop in and say hi to everyone. And I met her. We got on like house on fire and I actually went to her house and she showed me how to cook these. Um, and she was like you know like when you meet some people you're just naturally drawn to them they've just got something about them so she'd been through really bad cancer she was so full of life and energy her son was an opera singer and they were just really cool and she was telling I'm a bit obsessed with like pasta and meatballs and for some reason we were talking about that and she was like oh my goodness there's this dish that I've got to teach you so she showed me how to make them and they're sort of like sour meatballs in a um Sort of, there's a, you know, like there's a lot of like onions and pomegranate and, and it's very perfumed. And I was asking her, like, where is this recipe from? And she gave me that story that this Turkish guy had come and this was named after him. And I said, like, why? And she just went, well, it just is. 
<laughs> that was the end of the story. Okay. And I was like, what? Oh. Um, so can you give me any more detail on that? And she's sort of like, no, they're just, they're just named after him. And I've Googled it and spoken to other people and they've all sort of said the same thing. So whoever he was came over and left this dish and that's it. But regardless of the slightly sort of stunted story, they are delicious. They're really, really nice. I even made my own pomegranate molasses, which was so easy. Wow. That's Watch really out. top marks. You win. That's <laughs> amazing. Like, I would never do that. <laughs> it was really easy. Really? How long did it take to cook down? About eight minutes. Not that long. You're so good. That's amazing. I didn't make and was that, that just because you couldn't find it? You couldn't find a bottle or? Yeah, I couldn't. But I used pomegranate juice. Fab. Oh, that's great. Um, oh, that's so intuitive of you. Yeah, look at that. Look at you. <laughs> look at me cooking. <laughs> I also made um, the recipe for roasted carrots with tahini and black sesame seeds on page 51. Yeah, that's nice. Describe this dish. I think because I, I said earlier on about the, the, the way the produce works and the way um, things are just eaten in season. Uh, they have an innate love of vegetables. They just love veggies and they do them really, really well. And most meals you go to actually will have Actually, quite a lot of people will eat vegetarian food quite a lot of the time, certainly in the more rural areas where they've, they've not got so much cash. But even if you eat like a big meal, it will tend to be like a little bit of meat or fish, and then loads of veg. And this was just one of those dishes that was very simple. They, and it sort of it makes the vegetables sing. So what you want is sort of the do you have the word you do have the word heritage for vegetables in America, don't you? Yes. Do you we call that? them yeah. heirloom. OK, so heirloom carrots. Mm-hmm. So you want like the nicest carrots that you can get all different colors all different flavors and you just roast them up with a bit of cumin but the sort of lovely bit is the tahini and carrots have that sort of deep sweetness that you get from a root veg and tahini is a is a is almost like a peanut butter but it's made with sesame seeds so it's a ground sesame seed paste and it has a wonderful sort of rich sweetness that just complements the carrots and and it's just two like ingredients that work so well together and i just love it I also made the Accra Smash Lemon Chickpeas on page 16. How is this different from hummus? So, okay, so hummus is um, chickpeas, tahini, garlic, and lemon. And and that's how you make your classic hummus. And this this recipe, uh, so it's called Accra Smash. So Accra is the name of a restaurant in Tripoli. And Tripoli is this fabulous... um, old Phoenician city on the coast north of Beirut and it really is buzzing it's brilliant and I I think actually it's got the best street food in Lebanon it's in Tripoli and um, there's this ginormous restaurant called Accra and it opens really early in the morning like about six o'clock maybe even earlier and it stays open to about two and all they serve is hummus and it's got about 350 covers it's packed the whole time and um it, it's sort of the point being you basically get a whole bowl of hummus for yourself with a little bowl of pickles and veg and some pitters and that's your you know that's a snack or a light meal actually it's not that light because you eat so much hummus <laughs> but um one of the so they serve the classic hummus they serve a thing called hummus full spelled f-u-l and that's made with fava beans and um it, it's quite an acquired taste actually then they make this um other style of hummus that i copied in this book and it's it's basically the same ingredients. So you've got your chickpeas, your lemon, your garlic, and your tahini. But it's blended so that it has a bit a bit more texture. And they add, it, it's more lemon juice than you would normally. So it tastes a little bit fresher, a little bit lighter. And it's got a lovely texture to it. So it's not, it's not that sort of silky smooth complexion of hummus. It's, it's a bit more chunky, like a guacamole or something. 
But what was so nice about it is you get that sort of texture and sl- almost a bit dryness from the chickpeas. And it sort of, it, it, it feels like it's gagging for something. And what they did is they drizzle it with a chili butter. So a very rich chili butter and then loads of roasted nuts. So you get all the things that it's sort of missing and it's just divine. Now to my segment this season called My Favorite Cookbook. Right. Aside from this cookbook and your others, what is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? All-time favorite book. That's really hard. Can it only be one? Yes. Yes, because that was the question, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, my God, that's really hard. Um, What would be the one book that I would hang on to? It would be Delia Smith, How to Cook. And so Delia Smith is like a stalwart British cookery writer and, sh- and TV chef from the... Um, she was really massive, actually. She's still huge here now. But she was really sort of, um, like, big in the 70s and 80s. And she was like... It was sort of before cookery was kind of cool. So she was on telly and it was very sort of... It's a little bit like a school teacher telling you how to cook. And, um, you know, sort of no airs and graces, but her recipes really worked. And, you know, it was everything from like how to make an omelette to how to make a roast chicken. And I taught myself how to cook with that book. Um, so my mum had a copy and the cover, the Delia has the most extraordinary quaffed 1970s haircut you've ever seen. It's like, <laughs> it looks like someone's put a weird bowl over her hair, tilted it backwards and I cut love around it. it. It's extraordinary. If you Google it, it'll just make you roar with laughter. And that book, I learned how to cook from it. And I think that would probably be the one book I'd feel so nostalgic about and hang on to. I interviewed James Rich, who wrote the cookbook Apple yesterday. He said the same thing. Did he? That's so funny. (laughs) That is so funny. Okay, so you've done Turkey, Morocco, and Lebanon. What's next? I'm not entirely sure, actually. So I came up with a brilliant, very harebrained idea. <laughs> I like really weird and wonderful. I love weird and wonderful a lot. And um, I think my publisher thought my idea was way too weird and, and perhaps not so wonderful. So <laughs> they've asked me to rethink. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely want to continue with this, the sort of the Middle Eastern thing. Um, and I feel that I want to kind of dip into another country there because I, I just love it around there. Um, I've got a trip coming up. Actually, I'm going to Gaza in a couple of weeks, which is going to be very, very interesting. Oh so I'm going with the, Yeah, I'm going with a charity to look at um, child nutrition out there. It's all quite intense, but um, I think it will be incredible. I think it's going to be really extraordinary kind of going to, to a, pretty much a war zone to see how people eat. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, going to be quite an intense trip. But I, yeah, I would love to go somewhere. I, I love the Eastern Mediterranean. I think it's beautiful. Um, I, I'd love to do a book on ir- Iranian food, but I don't, I don't think now's the time to be going to Iran. <laughs> what does your mom say? Is your mom freaking out? Yeah, completely. When I said uh, the G word, um, I mean, they, they made that kind of teeth, teeth wincing noise. And um, she sort of went, oh, my baby, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing that? <laughs> And I was like, you know, I want to go because it's this amazing charity and we're going to help children. And, and it means that, you know, this tiny thing I can do to contribute could be a really good thing. And she was just like, but why there? <laughs> why don't you pick somewhere nicer? But I, I, I'm, I'm dead excited. I, I think it'll be great. So where can we find you on the web and social media? 
So um, I use Instagram an awful lot, much to the annoyance of my family. And I'm on my Instagram handles at John GS. And I put a lot of content on there from, uh, I do a lot of free content actually. So I try and stick a couple of recipes out every week for people to copy. Um, and then I put everything on my website, which is just johngregorysmith.com. As the Lebanese people say, satin, which means satin. double health. Thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Loved it. I love you. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book. <laughs>